You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Ho ucciso mio padre, mangiato carne umana e tremo di gioia. Ho ucciso mio padre, mangiato carne umana, sto tremando di gioia. Io e te, moglie, siamo alleati. Tu madre padre, io padre madre. La tenerezza e la durezza sono intorno a nostro figlio da tutte le parti. La Germania di Bonn, accidenti, non è mica la Germania di Hitler. Si fabbricano lane, formaggi, birre e bottoni. Quella dei cannoni è un'industria d'esportazione. Alla salute degli ebrei, dunque, signor Glotz. Alla salute dei maiali, signor Herr Hitze. Infatti, 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 c'è un momento in cui la mia abiezione di maiale, col ventre capace di contenere un'intera classe sociale, attraverso il rimpianto del passato si purifica. Ed è lì che io ho torto. Invece, 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 c'è un momento in cui la sua abiezione di maiale attraverso l'idea del futuro si fa ancora più cinica. Ed è lì che lei ha ragione. E allora Julia cosa aspetta a ingrassare come un maiale? Oppure cosa aspetta a dare del maiale a me? Eccoci arrivati al momento in cui nessun tribunale potrà mai dire se in lei parla la ferocia o la pietà. ben bene la nostra coscienza abbiamo stabilito di divorarti a causa della tua disobbedienza Welcome to the Projection Booth I'm your host Mike White Joining me once again is Mr. Ken Stanley Hello Mike I quiver with joy to be on this show this evening Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Uh, hello, Mike, and tra-la-la. 
Our appreciation of the films from 1969 continues with a look at Pier Paolo Pasolini's Porcile. Sorry, Porcile. I know I mispronounced that before and I feel pretty bad about it. It's two stories in one. The first is about a young man who doesn't want to follow in his father's capitalist footsteps nor in those of a student radical. The second is about a fine young cannibal who ravages the countryside. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film, so if you haven't seen Porcile, please turn off the podcast and come back when you have a chance. We will still be here. So, Ken, when was the first time you saw Porcile and what did you think? First time was a few weeks ago, and I have to admit, I thought it was a different film. I thought I saw Porcile, and for whatever reason, I thought it was Teorema, the film that uh, Pasolini had done just prior to that. So then one night, of all things, TCM shows Teorema. And I'm saying, this is the film I thought was Porchile. So I said, oh, I got to watch Porchile now. And then the first time I saw it, I was like, huh? And that was my initial reaction to seeing the film. The cross-cutting between these two different stories, because if you're watching it for the first time, you're assuming that there is a direct connection there. And there are little connections here and there. There are, there are uh, things that are relevant to each other. But for the most part, you just don't get that. And it's not like intolerance or something where everything comes together at the end in a glorious spectacle. So I was a little thrown the first time I saw it. How about you, Jonathan? I first saw it, I think, in around 2003. And it was um, on an ex-rental videotape that I had ordered from the U.S. I'd heard a little bit about it. I'd read uh, the review that was in the Time Out Film Guide, which uh, rated it very highly. And I was quite excited because... It was the, I think it was like the last Pasolini film that I got round to seeing. I mean, uh, remarkably enough, I'd managed to see most of his films thanks to British TV, which uh, had like a season of his films when I was a teenager. And I'd seen Salo, which had been re-released in about 2000. And uh, I have to say that when I first saw Puccini, I was probably a little bit surprised, maybe even a little bit disappointed that it's not as... Uh, sensational a film I think as the description led me to believe it's um, I think a more cerebral film than I was expecting I mean based on the uh, description I think I liked it I mean I think I I found it it strange enough and I mean I was really into the uh, art cinema of the late 60s and I think this is pretty much like a dream uh, late 60s European cast so I I was really uh, you know, I think pleased at the uh, mix of faces that you see on screen. And uh, I enjoyed the sort of odd humor of it. But uh, yeah, it took a couple of viewings, I think, to really kind of get my head around it. Yeah, this was the first time watch for me. I saw that this movie came out in 69. So I said, all right, well, I know Pasolini was a very political person and political filmmaker. So I wanted to get his perspective on what had been going on in the years previous and especially 1968 Italy and how he is reflecting that back to us in 1969. It's a little unfair because this was based on a play, which I believe he wrote and produced in 67. So we're getting that slice of time plus a little bit of 68 and then being reflected here in 69. And they very squarely placed this film in 67. There are a couple references to 1967 in the film as far as the modern day story goes, quote unquote, which is 
the story of Julian and all of the things that are going on in his world, even though he kind of disappears from his own story for a little bit. One of the things that I found interesting, too, doing research is that Pasolini wasn't necessarily behind a lot of the student radicals that were being very boisterous in Italy in 1968. He actually kind of came down on the other side of it and was saying, listen, you kids who are protesting, you're all from well-to-do families. What do you have to be bitching about? Whereas the police are usually from more uh, proletariat families. And he was actually coming down on the side of the police, which then caused a real firestorm. Like, how dare you not support the student radicals? He was opposed to the police as an institution, but the individual policemen he saw as being the sons of uh, the proletariat. It was a very complicated time. And that's what I meant to say earlier was that I really needed context. This is one movie that you really need context, uh, context on Pasolini, context on the politics of the time and what was going on in the world. You know, there's the Italian economic uh, miracle in the late fifties into the sixties. So the culture and everything was changing so fast. And there were a lot of people who didn't know how to process it all. And, Pasolini in particular saw it as a, a time of great cultural decay. It was probably reacting to what was going on uh, with the, there were strikers. Uh, there was a lot of strikes going on in the labor movement. And there, then there was these, uh, I think what he, he may have objected to the idea is that the revolt and the tumult of the time was fine. It's just that he thought that, the students really didn't have as much to protest about as the labor did, as the strikers did. So he probably took some offense at that and saw, looked at it entirely in terms of, of class division. And he's right. Proletariat probably were the fathers of these police. And the rich kids that were sent to college were rich kids. And I think he also objected to the Marxism that they were spewing. He was not – he – embraced Marxism, but he did not like that as a rhetoric that these kids were using. I think that he was a little offended by that as well. So, yeah, this comes from an, a very conflicted time. And then also, you know, you talked about the economic miracle that was happening in Italy. It's interesting that he is very much placing the modern story in Germany and making this very much about what was happening in Germany at the time. So it's really strange, too, when towards the end of the film, and I know I'm jumping way ahead, one of the characters is like, listen, I don't speak German as well as you guys, and I don't understand you because you're speaking German to me, but the print of this that I'm watching is all dubbed in Italian, so I'm just like, why is he saying this? But then I'm like, oh yeah, they're, they're supposed to be speaking German. I'm just not getting that from the film. It was an interesting and, and almost comical line when he's just like, I don't understand what you're saying to me, even though they're speaking to him in fluent Italian. It's really interesting, isn't it, the, that German setting, because I think it's like he sets it in Germany, but he sort of keeps sort of pulling the rug out from under our feet because, I mean, there are constant references to Italy. I mean, there's the firstly the, the actual villa itself where the uh, modern story is set. I mean, I think it's quite a well-known location, isn't it, in sort of northern Italy, and uh, it looks Italian, and I think they refer to it as an Italianized villa, 
And then there's references to the fact that her hips uh, got his plastic surgery done in Italy. And uh, I think Marco Ferreri's character at one point says, well, you know, I look Italian. So I was able to kind of blend in when I went there. And mm. it's kind of like constantly bringing us back to that Italian context, which I guess is part of the artifice of the film that, I mean, it doesn't really try and create like a credible realistic narrative but uh, yeah i did feel that he was making it really clear that he was commenting on the italian situation as well at the time and uh, and then of course also you have the fact that i mean the two young characters are played by french actors and so i think that is intended as a way to allude to the uh, paris may 68 movement as well so i think he was probably you know, making a gesture that he was incorporating that into this critique of the, you know, the, the sort of bourgeois radicals. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a kind of a wider context there, isn't there, of the sort of the Western European student movement that he is uh, attacking. Well, Jean-Pierre Lyard and Anne Vyazemsky were both, they were both in uh, Godard's Le Chinois together, and they both starred in that. So it may have been uh, that may have been part of the mix because Godard was very heavily involved in politics at that time. And he was making films that were didactical and rhetorical. And they, I think maybe Pasolini saw himself as kind of like the Italian Godard, even though he didn't need to. He had a reputation and a career that came far earlier. And he was very influential as, as a poet, writer, documentarian, etc. But still... There's a, a touch of that, like the both going in a similar direction with didacticism and rhetoric. I, I sort of read it that way as well. I mean, uh, Anne Vyazemsky had been in uh, Theorem as well, but I think the fact that she's mixed here with Leo, I think it is meant to be a kind of explicit reference back to, as you say, to Le Chinoise and to the... I think, to the uh, political films that Goddard was making. And I mean, I guess we could say that partly it's a homage, partly a critique maybe of the sort of political aspirations of uh, of Goddard himself and of the, uh, you know, the Parisian youth who I guess Pasolini would probably have criticised in much the same way as he did the Italian youth, you know, that these are the sort of sons and daughters of the bourgeoisie. And I think with the character that Vyazemsky is playing, I feel that uh, that's meant to evoke a character who, on the one hand, I mean, she's meant to be this voice of the student youth, the, you know, revolutionaries of 68 or 67, I guess. But I mean, she's wearing a fur coat. Uh, it seems that she's really, you know, going to kind of join the the bourgeoisie or that she's part of the bourgeoisie and she is a privileged figure too. I think they say at one point that, you know, if, if they get married, they will, you know, between the two of them, they will sort of own like half of West Germany. I mean, it's, they're really <laughs> both kind of very privileged, you know, bourgeois people. And, uh, uh, you know, I think you feel that, I mean, she, although she, you know, pays lip service to the revolution, I mean, ultimately she will just, in the end, become complicit with the system represented by the parents and will become part of the bourgeoisie, part of the industrial class. The very first conversation they have with each other, it starts out very, like I keep saying, didactic. Mm. I mean, she addresses it directly. We are here to analyze our positions or words to that effect. So it's right up front that it's not a typical romance or anything. What you're getting is a, um, you know, a, 
a political argument right in front of your face. And that's how it's addressed, which is unusual in a boy meets girl or boy with girl uh, scenario. And they're doing it in a lot of one shots, just cutting between the two characters to really emphasize the space between them. And then when we do get a two shot of them when they're arguing, he's in what looks like a palanquin and she's outside of it looking at him. So it, it, they're still separated, even though they're finally in a two shot together. There's a lot of just direct face t- face on um, talking to the camera almost as if she's talking to us rather than talking to Julian and vice versa. Uh, it's incredibly theatrical, isn't it? Uh, and uh, the, the more I watched it, the more I realized how artificial that is. I think you, as you say, I think you either see them only in frontal shots in close up or, or you see them in the profile so it's a bit like how Burns things where it's either you know front face or it's strict profile and i mean you never really get any physical contact i think or any proximity between them as you say they're really just like these two sort of talking heads set beside one another the uh, scene with the palanquin is particularly stylized isn't it i mean there's no uh real justification realistically for that in the scene i mean i think it's really just being used as a symbolic prop isn't it to indicate his separateness and his seclusion from everything and i think that's the scene where she's wearing the fur coat so i think you know in both cases you have these very artificial sort of stylized props and i think the scene before that is kind of the same you have the same characters and it just sort of jumps forward it doesn't really explain like why he's suddenly sitting in this in this litter and uh yeah i mean it's, it's very overtly uh it's brechtian really i mean brecht is yes cited directly <laughs> isn't he but uh, that makes sense now it can't help but be theatrical i think because it's start out life as a play it stands aside from other things that pasolini was doing at the time the previous film theorema had fewer than a thousand words spoken throughout the whole movie. And the other section of this film, the medieval section, has virtually no dialogue until the end of that segment. So this really stands apart as being very heavy with rhetoric. Yeah, it feels very stage-bound at times, though they keep it moving well enough. And then also, yes, the cross-cutting to the other scenes, the stuff with Pierre Clemente, I think definitely helps keep this from feeling like it is just a stage play. I think the only point for me where I would say the talkiness kind of gets uh, on top of it is in the scene between um, the father of Klotz and uh, Marco Ferreri's character, Gunter, where I feel it, it just becomes a little bit too expository for its own good. I mean, I think generally it actually, it, I mean, it is a talky film, it's a cerebral film, but I think the it's so sort of deliberate somehow in its approach. I mean, it, it's so aware of its own artifice and of its own literary quality that I, I think it does work quite well. I mean, I think he manages to produce something that's still quite compelling and i mean a lot of the dialogue is quite bizarre as well isn't it and and quite funny as well in parts so i think it it does although it's not conventionally cinematic i think there's enough awareness i think of what he's doing and there's, there's enough sort of panache somehow in the kind of dialogue that he's producing and i think in the visual compositions too that it, it does hold our attention and as you say you have that contrast with the clementi scene i mean you have really no dialogue and 
till the end. And so, yeah, you have that nice formal contrast. This was uh, 1969. Only, uh, what, four or five years later, he'd make Sallow, in which, so to speak, he would go whole hog with showing things. I'm not sure whether whether that's a good thing or a bad thing here, because it does seem like a lot of the dialogue later on in the film when we get to um, her hits it, where he gets to the point of explaining exactly what he knows about Julian, that seemed to drag a little bit. Like, all right, already, we think we get it, get to the point. Maybe if he'd done it five years later, he would have shown Julian having sex with a pig. Yes, I, I think that was that was my sort of disappointment. I think as a sort of twenty-year-old when I when I first saw the film, I think having seen Salo, I guess the year before, I think that's what I was expecting. I was expecting, I think, a much more graphic, much more head-on uh, yeah. approach. Come on, already! Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> you're a pig. <laughs> this is not Vasas des Noches. This is not the wedding trough here. This is. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you're going to have to wait five years for that one so you can see the pig fucking movie. I, I kind of agree with Ben, I think, in that, because I I, uh, I mean, you could say that that in a way works in Pasolini's favor, because I think, you know, he's using that uh, idea of bestiality and of cannibalism as a metaphor. And so, you know, there are all these metaphors in his work about around consumption. And I guess... The fact that, I mean, at the end, I mean, it's kept just as dialogue. I mean, it's just related by the uh, farm workers who come in. I mean, that, I guess, keeps it at a cerebral level. I mean, I think it, it means that you don't get fixated on the, you know, the sort of gross detail. I mean, it, it, it retains that, I guess, metaphorical power rather than seeing this thing in literal terms. And uh, I do think that final sequence is quite the way that they all come in the way that the quartet starts playing this mournful tune again i think you know he's in command of what he's doing i mean again very theatrical but uh in its own sort of dry and ironic way i think that that works pretty pretty well you talk about the quartet and there's this thing that runs throughout pasolini's movies is he always liked to cross contaminate if you had something uh, in the background like the in the very first film akatoni he he has a I think a piece of uh, Bach playing while these, uh, you know, sub-proletariat hoodlums are, are fist fighting in the street or not even a street. It's like a alleyway or something. And so you'll find that all the time in Pasolini, like uh, Baroque music in the, during the uh, medieval section here, playing while this guy's running around chasing things to eat. Uh, and, that's just an interesting contrast that he throws in is, is to contaminate both is to contaminate the high level and also contaminate the low level with, you know, contrasting, um, class or, you know, uh, using indicators to con to make the contrast between the two. I like that Julian's big struggle is, does he follow in the, in his father's footsteps or does he follow in Ida's footsteps? Does he become a student radical or does he become an industrialist? And that he's completely paralyzed between the two of those to the point where I think his fit of peak, where he ends up in bed almost comatose, I think that's because of his indecision and that he can't do that. And that really his only joy in the world is going down to the pigsty, il portile, and having sex with pigs. And that seems to be his 
moment of rebellion against both of those worlds. He doesn't want to choose any one of those things. There's an interesting response to that, I think, in a lot of the uh, reading about the film. I mean, I, I, I think this was one thing that when I first saw it, I didn't really know what to make of it, I think, because uh, I think in the uh, scenes with Clementi, I mean, I think you could sort of see that more straightforwardly as uh, a kind of transgressive act. Scenes with uh, Julian, yeah, we're not really clear, are we, where he stands, where we're meant to position him. And I mean, I think some of the writings about the film, I mean, see this in its own way as a kind of transgression because, I mean, he's refusing to be obedient. You know, he's refusing, to, as you say, to follow in the father's footsteps, but he's also refusing to be disobedient. And I guess for the father and, you know, by extension for the sort of power structure for the uh, bourgeoisie it's difficult for them to know you know how do they respond to him i mean they can't really punish him because he's not formally they can't embrace him because he's formally submitted he's in this sort of indeterminate space and uh, he's a sort of a, a, a figure kind of beyond any recognizable identity and i mean that's i think where you get that great scene between the mother and Ida, where uh, they have the completely contradictory views about him. And I think that expresses this idea that somehow we cannot define him. He doesn't fit into the existing, you know, symbolic order. So I guess that's one way of looking at it. But of course, at the end, I mean, he's eaten. I mean, he's literally, you know, absorbed by the the system. You know, no mention will ever be made of him again. And of course, that ends up serving the, uh, the bourgeoisie. It serves this merger between these two powerful industrialists and uh, so yeah i think there is an, an ambiguity about you know whether we read this as in some way a positive transgressive thing or whether we see it as ultimately kind of self-defeating i like that they say that not even a button is left because there's this refrain that goes through the entire movie of what are what is being made what is industrialized and they go through this whole thing of like cannons and this and this and this and it always ends and buttons and so that mm-hmm. the movie almost ends with you know not even a button was left of him and then we get the you know the almost the poster image of the guy shushing us shushing the the audience and everyone that is is watching him before he just says you know not a word to a soul and then we end the movie it's so nice that that button is is the literal button on this movie the uh catatonic state where he's in the catatonic state that brings to mind a similar scene in Teorema, the previous film where Anne Vyazemsky actually uh ends up in a catatonic state I was reminded a little bit of, and this is going to be a stretch, I was reminded a little bit of The Graduate because of those moments when Benjamin goes and he goes into the water and he's sitting at the bottom of the pool. And this whole idea of he's graduated, he has no idea what he wants to do, where he wants to go, and it feels like everyone is telling him, you should do this, you should do that, you know, plastics. Um, you know, And then the whole idea of Mrs. Robinson is a way to get away from that. She's the transgression. You know, I'm not saying that Mrs. Robinson is a pig, but she's the same transgression of him you know, of Julian, Julian having sex with the pigs. It's like, a, uh, I'm not going to follow in the footsteps. I'm not going to date Elaine. I'm going to have sex with Mrs. Robinson. And I, I yeah, I thought of that. But I, again, I guess it's that idea of indeterminacy, isn't it? And then it's, it's, yes, it's like a transgression, which is a sexual transgression. 
one of the things I think where Pasolini was always at odds with the sort of official Marxism as represented by the Italian Communist Party. And I think also to some extent by the student radicals in Italy was that I think Pasolini felt that it was too rational and it didn't embrace the, I guess, the sort of sexual side of uh, rebellion. And I mean, he was interested, I think, in psychoanalysis. And I think the fact that this is a sexual transgression into sexual perversity, I think, uh, is interesting. I think that sort of embracing, I guess, a kind of rebellion, you know, beyond just a political rebellion. Um, watching it again, I think uh, even in the story with the cannibals, I think there is perhaps a sort of sexual dimension to that too. I mean, I think the idea of quivering with joy and I think the first um, cannibal attack, I think, has a kind of sexual dimension to it. Oh, yeah. And that Pierre Clementi he doesn't stay in his clothes very often and that there are even when it's not him being naked there are other naked men during that whole section of it so yeah i definitely see there being a, a sexual aspect to that even the first time that he meets another person out in that lonely landscape he ends up killing that person but it's like are you going to the what are the 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 three f's like uh flight fuck or i can't even remember what the other one is so yeah what is he going to do is he going to fuck this guy or is he going to fight him mm, or feed on him i guess and feed on him yes which he ends up doing i think and there's something about clemente's presence as well i mean he, he's really like one of my favorite actors and i think very much an actor of that era i mean i, I think if you look at like his other roles i mean i think really he was born to play this character and uh I think the expression on his face, I think at the moment that that soldier falls, you get this, it's a sort of a combination of cruelty and sensuality almost, I think. And uh, yeah, I think he, just in his expressions, I think he captures that sort of erotic side to that, uh, you know, the cannibal motif. You're pretty much guaranteed if Pierre Clementi is in a movie at this point that it is going to be off the beaten path. And I always appreciated that about him, that he wasn't necessarily making, quote-unquote, normal films. You know, I think about this movie, of course, he's got a great role in Sweet Movie, and they're just, it, like, looking at his filmography, you can just see title after title where you're just like, yeah, he was really pushing it. There were some really interesting roles that this guy was in, which is very fascinating to me that he manages to spend almost this entire movie without any dialogue, and that... Uh, when he finally gets his dialogue at the end, he just keeps repeating it. So it's just a, a almost a mantra at the very end of this. That moment, uh, you know, you have a lot of things going on, don't you? You have the, uh, I guess, sort of uh, reference to the Oedipal complex. It's very interesting to compare his character with the character played by Franco Chichi, who is the other sort of main cannibal in that little band of of, uh, of cannibals. And uh, at the end, I mean, he, he is kind of repentant and he's desperate. And it's almost like Clementi, I think, embodies the idea of a kind of conscious transgression. I mean, he just stands there, doesn't he? And then he refuses at the end when they're being uh, condemned. He refuses to kiss the crucifix. And uh, again, I think that, you know, brings to mind, you know, the fact that, I mean, he tended to play a, a, a revolutionary, I think, in other places, or he tends to figure is this again again a kind of iconic figure i think of that 1968 era and uh, i guess the character that chitty plays is a much more primal 
figure. I mean, it re- reminds me of the fact that, I mean, Chitty plays Akatone, doesn't he? He appears in a lot of other Pasolini films, but tends to have a slightly different status. He's a much more, yeah, a much more uh, instinctual figure. I think the Clementi figure is much more intended as a kind of revolutionary figure. Now, I noticed uh, a couple things that I think may have been symbolic or metaphorical in the uh, medieval section, as I keep referring to it. I mean, I don't know how you guys would refer to it. Yeah, I saw somebody wrote about it and said, oh, yeah, this is the 1300s, but then they have guns. So I'm thinking it has to be closer to 1800s, but I'm not sure. I'm no expert in like when muskets and stuff were around. So it kind of confuses me then even more so because this is way past paganism. However, I see the the nude man and woman uh, who are kind of put out in that uh, landscape there to act as bait more or less, for the Christian soldiers. Uh, Adam and Eve, maybe, mm-hmm. leading leading people to Christianity or something. It's, it's a bait. Come well, on. Well, and he kills a snake right at the beginning, too. I was like, oh, okay. So I did notice some more things that were... After the... the there's a scene where, after he cannibalizes his first victim, there's uh, close-up shots of the victim's hand and his feet. And the first thing that sprang to my mind was a crucifixion thing. Like this gets nailed. Uh, like these are body parts that get nailed to a cross and then it cuts immediately to Julian lying in bed and being referred to as Christ-like. So that was one way I was trying to find ways to bridge the two, the two separate films, you know? And so that kind of worked for me. <laughs> What's interesting that, Mar- uh, what's his name, Maraccione, that he's in both sections. He's in both sections, yeah. And there's no explanation of that, but he's there. He's a witness to both things, I guess. He's almost like the eternal witness. And he played a similar role in Teorema in that he shows up, delivers a message, and then delivers another one later on in the movie. And that's it. Oh, so- my God. I Yeah, I love that character. He just kind of, yeah. I know who you're talking about now because I, I, it's been a, a year or so since I've seen Teorino. But yeah, him showing up as the message boy was great. So maybe he was supposed to play that kind of whatever witness or something that Pasolini saw him as that. Yes, I, I got that sense from it too, really. And yes, this is Ninetto de Boli who is in probably in most of Pasolini's films, I think certainly in the later half of his career, and does tend to embody the sense of a kind of primal vitality and of a kind of wholesomeness. and uh, yeah, innocence. It's interesting in the, um, in the uh, Clementi scenes that, I mean, the costume he's wearing, I mean, to me looks quite modern, uh, of a piece with the other outfits. It almost looks kind of hippie-ish to me. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same uh, the same thought occurred to me while watching as the the hippie boy. Yeah, I I, I think he is. A, I don't know if I would go so far to say he's a kind of conscience figure, but uh, yeah, definitely I think he is the closest we get to a uh, a source of identification. In that, I think we do see things at the end through his perspective. And of course, he relates the uh, death of Julian, doesn't he, with some sympathy and. Uh, yes, I think he is, as you say, I think kind of a witness to the events and. Uh, probably a measure of our own sympathies. 
I like, too, that there's a real tie into Nazis and war crimes that are happening in here when it comes to, you know, speaking of the father and the father's works and the father's world. I mean, the father, the father wearing that Hitler stash. Yeah. <laughs> and then the whole thing of uh, Marco Ferrari. And we'll be talking about uh, Ferrari a little bit more in, a, I think, a month or so when we talk about Seeds of Man, because he was a director uh, uh, in his own right. But uh, this whole story of the Hiltz who becomes Herd Hits and that he has escaped to Italy to get plastic surgery and changed his name and that he had this whole collection of, what was it, 70 Jewish skulls because he didn't have enough skulls in his collection because he was a alleged professor of uh, anatomy or something. It's just like... Wow. Um, just really going into detail about how he managed to get these skulls and how he uh, managed to prevent himself from being uh, prosecuted for war crimes. The plastic surgery motif, I think, is probably the uh, the closest I think the film gets to it, like quite an obvious uh, symbol, because I guess this is the idea that, I mean, the new West Germany, I mean, really, it's the old Germany, it's the old fascist Germany, but with a, a facelift with this sort of superficial cosmetic transformation. And uh, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, it's not at war anymore. It's not, uh, you know, killing people, it's producing buttons and cheese and beer and so on. But still, it's basically the same old fascist system and uh yeah it's interesting that i mean herr klotz uh is the one who looks like hitler i mean it seems that her hits uh i mean is the real nazi i mean i was quite interested in the the fact that i mean the one who looks like hitler is actually the less complicit of the two i mean i'm not sure what the past is, is meant to have been of uh of herr klotz I mean, presumably he too is complicit in some way with the with Nazism, but uh, yeah, heard hits. There is this kind of smooth technocratic face of uh, of neo fascism, I guess. If you have a character who is crippled, uh, that has some kind of meaning, you would think the Klotz character is in a wheelchair for most of the film. You know, I'm sure that there's some kind of reasoning or meaning behind that. Right? Is he? disenfranchised as he had his power taken away from him. Yeah, there's the, I was questioning that as well. And then that he uses the crutches towards the end of the film versus being in the wheelchair for so much of the movie, or we'll see him in bed as well. There's that great conversation that he has with his wife where he brings up uh, Brecht. And then who is the artist that he keeps? George Roach. Thank you. Yeah. He keeps bringing up, those two uh, artists uh, quite a few times and even comparing he and his wife to pigs and the, the idea of pigs goes through this entire movie, not just literal pigs, but these capitalists are also being called pigs. The reference to grows, he mentions them again later on in the film. Now Brecht uh, known for alienation effect in theater uh, George Groves was one of the original uh, Dada artists in Berlin. There are a few different enclaves there, Berlin, Fran- uh, Paris, and Zurich. And I find that interesting because the Dada's approach to social criticism was to be more or less like indecipherable. They reacted to World War I by saying everything that's come before, uh, language, religion, history, 
uh, business, anything in society, all of it had led up to World War One. So let's destroy it all. So their reaction to the to their time was more or less to to create stuff that didn't make sense. Now, nowadays, we see them as precursors to surrealism. But I think it's interesting that Pasolini brings that up because I think that he, in his own way, when he talks about making indigestible films and uh, he's trying to thread a needle that not too many people understand. He's a man of principles, and they kept changing as he kept changing. But I, th- I find that that idea behind the dot is, is kind of like survives in this film. Yes, that's um I'd not thought of it from that perspective, but yeah, I, I agree. I think that, uh, yes, I think that does relate to this idea of creating something that is indigestible. I mean, I guess Pasolini uh, was really embracing, I think, at this point. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, that, that those open references to Brecht and Grosch are really interesting because of who they're coming from as well. And I think that, uh, I think in one of the... Uh, uh, essays I've read on the film. I mean, it, it suggests that, I mean, in, in a way, there is a kind of despair behind the fact that, I mean, this character is mentioning these figures because I think it indicates that at this point, the bourgeoisie or the sort of neo fascist uh, power structure is itself now aware of the critique that is made of it. And so it's almost able to incorporate its own critique. I mean, you have this quite sophisticated, uh, you know, these quite sophisticated references to artists. And it's almost as though now this system is beyond critique because it can actually incorporate these parodies of itself into it. And uh, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, interestingly um, open act of homage, I think. And uh, yeah, and I think Brecht as well, I guess, is the, uh, the model of a, a sort of a, a politically conscious artist who was not um, afraid to be formalistic. And I think one of um, Pasolini's objections to the uh, Italian Communist Party was that it was really just rooted in this idea of realism. And uh, I guess Brecht is anything but. And, you know, as we've said, I think the style of the certainly of the clock sequences, I mean, he's very, to me, he's very Brechtian. But Pasolini... Like with the Trilogy of Life, he would go on to reject that. And he rejected the Trilogy of Life, which was the three films he made after uh, after Porchile, that more or less were humanistic, down-to-earth, body even, and were pretty popular with the uh, public at large. But then he saw that the reaction to that was that there were other people who started making these cheap knockoff films of these films that took place in uh, history, much like his three films did. And he, he realized that what the message he was trying to put across just got commodified and spit out as something else, softcore porn. So I think that the issue of commodification, a lot of issues he had would end up forcing him into like kind of a catatonic state when it comes to an actual, what should we do about this? So and I think that he's reflected in Julian in that way. You, you can't you can't be obedient because that would have certain uh, consequences. You can't be uh, disobedient because that would have certain consequences. And he felt that way. I, I'm assuming he felt that way when he was talking about rejecting the trilogy of life. Yes, I mean it's interesting that Salo, I guess, is kind of like the end of the road, isn't it? Because Salo, I guess, was an attempt to create the ultimately 
indigestible film. And oh, he was planning the trilogy of death. Literally, mm. that's what what he was saying. That his next film was going to be about uh, after how was going to be about this uh, historical figure who was a uh, compatriot of Joan of Arc, who went on to become a mass child murderer. And that was his next film. But he never got to make it. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, when you think of the fate of Salo, because I guess at this point now, I mean, it's probably, I don't know if it's the same elsewhere, but certainly, I mean, I I think in Britain, I would say it's probably the best known now of his films. And it tends to be the one that people who don't really know much else about Pasolini, the one that they tend to know about. And I guess you could say that it has been commodified to some extent i mean now it's packaged as this kind of ultimate sort of endurance test and it's like this this terribly shocking and transgressive film that you're meant to you know be horrified by and it's kind of a uh, you know this sensational experience and i was thinking that i mean maybe you know you could say that Puccile succeeds better as an indigestible film or an inconsumable film in the sense that it's kind of harder to know what to do with it i mean it doesn't really succeed as a kind of a, a visceral or a sensational experience it's kind of too intellectual and yet in other respects it does have that you know that shock to it and uh, it's kind of harder to harder to define it somehow and so yeah i wonder whether this actually succeeds better because it isn't quite as graphic it doesn't quite have that impact that Salo has graphically what do you guys make of the whole tra-la-la thing? It could be shorthand for uh, banal, <laughs> something like that. I'm, I'm not really sure. There, there are a few little theatrical issues, aren't there, after some of the statements. Like, I think there's a hurrah at one point, and there's a few of those little sort of interjections, I guess, which, I mean, to me, I just saw it as uh, being another theatrical touch. But uh, It's kind of like uh, maybe when, when they do that, they're, they're acknowledging that this is a trite thing to say, mocking the very idea of having to say something trite in answer to each other. Like, I scratch my head is another one that Jean-Pierre Lyot does when I remember one moment i think where love is mentioned or something or or she says i love you and he says i scratch my head and then he does it it's almost like he's reading the stage directions i think that links back to goddard as well because as i remember that in a film like la chinoise i think there's a lot of critique of language and of the fact that language is this sort of conventional thing that where you can never quite say what you what you mean and uh I think another sort of critique I've read of this film of Puccile is that it, it is a critique of the the emptiness of language. And uh, it's interesting that in that first uh, shot, I think, of Julian, he's actually whistling. And I think there's a few scenes of him whistling. And it's almost like that, that act of whistling is a sort of defiance of verbal communication. Or the expectations. It's kind of Brechtian as well. I like that there is a mention of Julian uh, enjoying Murnau films. That that's really the only cross filmic reference that we get in here is when they're talking that that incredible scene of Ida and the mother talking to each other, and you know, oh yeah, he doesn't like films. Oh no, he went to see a whole retrospective of Mur- of Murnau. He doesn't do this. Yes, he totally does. Just the way that everything that one says is contradicted by the other one. Neither one of them seems to have any idea who Julian is. It's a good point that struck me. That scene was uh, 
very telling about, I think, what the intent of Julian was, was to avoid being characterized and categorized. In regard to Murnau, I I noticed uh, watching it again that uh, I think the new boyfriend of Ida that she mentions at the end is Happy Yannings. So I thought, is that a reference to Emil Yannings? Emil Yannings, yeah. Nice. (laughs) Now, I don't know if I saw the same print you guys saw, but in the print I saw, it only makes a reference, and it says he accidentally saw Murnau. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. Yeah, the one I think I watched said he went to a retrospective of Marnau, so okay. probably not a mistake to, to see an entire retrospective. Well, my the print I saw was on Amazon Prime, so I could watch it on my TV. So There were a couple moments with this version. So the version I watched was actually an import from, of a place's Korea, very affordable uh, version of it. And there are a couple times where things aren't... Uh, subtitled, like the very first time we see Julian's father, he says something and it's not subtitled. And my Italian is not so good that I could actually make out what he was saying. When I'm, when I read it with the Italian and the English subtitles, I can tell kind of what they're saying a little bit more, but without the subtitles, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not getting it. I also find it strange those, the, the very beginning of the film, and then we get it a second time where it's the words that the father is reading it's almost like they're carved in stone tablets or something they the, the, that you can read along with him uh even though it's not necessarily a proper title card um these blocks that are lying on the ground it looks like and him talking about like hitler being a feminine man and that i am the mother father and my wife is the father mother and then we go back to that about midway through the whole movie I think we're supposed to get the impression of maybe that this was future generation finding these tablets with this information on there and that you see the wind blowing, the sand blowing over them and get that feeling that this was uh, the story written down. But I wasn't quite sure whether the first tablet, if you will, was was about the – the cannibal sequence and the second one was about the contemporary or whether they were interchangeable because they're laid out in the landscape where the first story is told or the cannibal story is told. It's in that same landscape. So I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of that. Yes, that's true. It does feel that it belongs sort of diegetically to the, the cannibal story. And yeah, I mean, I, I thought they were part, and I, I thought they were tablets too. I think I read somewhere that they're meant to be paper, but I think if they are, they're kind of like parchment, aren't they? And then you have that sort of Latin style or sort of Roman style writing. And uh, yeah, I like the idea that they are sort of, um, you know, relics as seen by a future generation. And I guess it ties the film back to this idea of myth and, uh, I think this film tends to be classed with Pasolini's other films about myth. I mean, uh, I think he'd made Oedipus Rex a couple of years before. I think he made Medea after this one. And, um, yeah, I guess we could um, look at that ironically in that it's, uh, you know, there's nothing really sort of mythic or heroic about the contemporary sequences. I mean, I think the the cannibal squids, to me, uh, are very much at home with his other sort of mythical films. I mean, I think the style... Um, to me, very much is 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 in the vein of Oedipus Rex, and uh, to me, I think the uh, the contemporary sequences I think look much more to Sao, I think, in that kind of formal quality. And 
yeah, I think that was one of the things that I really responded to when I first saw it. I think that you have that kind of constant stylistic interplay. And I mean, you have the, uh, in the, uh, the cannibal sequences, I mean, you have Pasolini, the, the, in a way, the lover of, uh, faces, the lover of nature, natural environments. And in the contemporary sequences, you have that sort of, uh, interest in, I guess, architecture and in tableau and, uh, he doesn't really make a lot of films about modern life, but I think when he turns to modern life, when he turns to the bourgeoisie, it's almost as though it has to take this very stylized, very artificial form. And uh, it's interesting, too, that I think it's at this point where he starts to use professional actors. And it's almost as though, you know, I think the bourgeoisie has this kind of artifice about it, that it has to be played by you know, professional actors in this sort of theatrical way. And uh, I guess it's uh, it's almost sort of demythifying. I think it's almost as though, you know, this, this world has lost any sense of heroism and it's just become absurd. I couldn't help but thinking about the ending of Teorema. Uh, I don't know if you guys recall it or not, but it's the patriarch of the family that the film is centered upon. And he's in a Milan train station. And then it, he... It, there's a cut, and he's in the same terrain that the cannibalism story starts in. And he takes off all of his clothes and starts running and screaming towards the camera. And I'm wondering if there's any sense of continuation that is supposed to be tie the two films together. I wouldn't put it past Pasolini for that, no. I mean, and especially because the cannibal story i believe and, and and if you guys have read the play please correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe that any of that section is in the play so i think that was fully made that's up right. for the movie i think that's true and, and it's the same it's literally the same location isn't it i think it's kind of the the oh, way that's it's, yeah that's really interesting too because i guess the uh you know the the, the sequences with the father in Tiarema, i mean are meant to reflect this uh, condition after he's given his factory away and uh, i guess in a way there is a sort of revolutionary gesture in that and uh, but in a weird way he's almost more in the sort of position of clark of, of julian clark's isn't he and he's in this sort of indeterminate state and uh, but I, yeah i definitely also saw some kind of continuity there i think uh, um i mean if we're looking at it in terms of uh, biblical uh, references which i think are definitely there i mean this is a sort of uh, in a way it's kind of like an anti-eden isn't it it's a sort of a barren landscape yeah that landscape landscape is just remarkable just the the darkness of the soil all that volcanic uh i i didn't realize that mount etna is actually still a uh, semi-active volcano i guess so there's certainly activity there or, or it is a made to appear to be uh active it's a good place to throw heads that you've hacked off of bodies, apparently. Now, that's supposed to be a sacrifice, right? Or uh, was it just like, uh, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like there was a purpose to it. I mean, especially him walking around with those heads, because he could have put those anywhere, really. <laughs> yes, I'd not thought of that, but I think that's true. And I think that links to, I think in Medea, there is a sequence like that, isn't there, where the human sacrifice, where you have body parts being sort of... Uh, sort of offered like that. So, yeah, I, I think given Pasolini's interest in myth, I think that that makes sense to me. 
from what I read in the play, there was supposed to be a, or there was in the play, a long conversation between Julian and um, Spinoza, all talking about ethics. And I'm kind of glad they cut it out of the movie version because it seems like it would have been a really long, involved conversation and really gone into kind of like your philosophy 101, maybe even past that kind of thing. Um, I couldn't stand the people that wrote about this movie. I couldn't understand so many of these articles when they would quote from the movie or from the play, they would quote it in Italian and then not translate it. It was so frustrating. I'm like, guys, it's been 20 years since I took Italian class. I'm really having a hard time with this. It's already the contemporary section is already heavy with dialogue. So even Pasolini may have thought, I uh, got to lighten up a little bit when it comes to, you know, philosophy. Uh, it's interesting that that probably the, the play, I'm not sure whether it was a, a full evening at the theater or whether it was a one or two act play or, or how long it, it how long its running time was on stage. But it appears to me that it may have been roughly over an hour or something like that. So it was probably an inspiration or something that made that he concluded that he should have this other part of the, of the, of the film as opposed to expanding the story that he already had. So I'm not sure exactly. Um, personally, I'm not sure exactly how he would think it would work, but I, I suspect that he thought it was a natural. So he put the two together. Yes, I, I wasn't able to find out exactly why or how he, he came up with that other story. And yes, I, I've kind of gathered the same thing, too, that the play as it was was probably a bit too short. And um, I think the cannibal section is sometimes referred to as Orgia. Uh, and Pasolini also wrote a play called Orgia, which I initially thought was the same story, but apparently it's not. It's completely different. And so, yeah, I'm not quite sure how that how those little uh, scenes evolved. I mean, I guess it was maybe a case of, yes, just thinking of yeah, something to add to the story that was too short. And uh, It's pretty enigmatic for me. And a lot of what you read about Pasolini, there's a lot of, it was his nature to embrace contradictions. And there's certainly a lot of misinterpretation and apparently a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what was actually going on with him. I saw this one clip, a brief clip. He was sitting on a panel on a sports talk show, like an ESPN in uh, Italy. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, they cut to, there's a big screen, apparently uh, uh, on-site interview with this bicyclist. And the bicyclist, you know, he greets the host and everything and says, Pasolini, what are you doing here? Are you going to offer some kind of criticism of bicycling? Are you going to create some kind of scandal involving bicycles? And Pasolini responded by saying, uh, I like cycling. <laughs> and they called me to be on the show. So I'm just here as a cycling enthusiast. But I think, I think as much as he provoked and as much as he was scandalous and scandalized, I think that he followed his own stream of thought and other people got upset with it. <laughs> you know, so it, it's tough to figure out a lot of this stuff, if you, especially in the year 2020, looking back on this, 
And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe your listeners would be better off if they did have spoilers because <laughs> context matters. Yeah, I think this is one of those movies where you can listen to the episode first before you watch the movie and maybe get a little bit more appreciation. I, I believe that when the film was shown at Venice in, in 1969 that uh, Paddy actually presented quite detailed notes. So I think he even he was conscious. I think this is this is one of the more difficult uh, films that he made. So, uh, yes, and I think as, a, as an Anglophone viewer, I mean, for me, I think part of the problem is in, you know, I think – we get the uh, you know the films without. I mean, in my case, I guess without um, the sort of wider context of his writings and of his fiction and poetry and so on. And I think there is a sort of like a whole sort of body of work which kind of interconnects in quite sort of detailed ways. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think um, you know, I think watching a film like this cold, I mean, can be quite baffling, really. I was on Pasolini as far as not supporting the students and the left and all this, but we have to also remember that 69, I believe was called the year of lead or one of the years of lead, which was a whole lot of kidnappings and robberies and all of this done by uh, Brigade Russo, which was a left-wing organization that was doing all of these horrible things. And we know that uh, I think they were around for a couple decades, just a real horrible presence in Italian society. There was a late 60s for quite a while the years of lead happened. I was just wondering, Jonathan, do you get over the continent occasionally? Um, sometimes, yes. I'm in Canada at the moment. But yeah, whenever I, whenever I can go back to the UK, I'll often try and go to Czech Republic or, yes, um, have kind of contacts in continental europe as well and uh yeah um well i'm just wondering because like it's something like i'm not sure about regular everyday normal run-of-the-mill americans i don't think that there is as much um connection between the average american and politics now over the last few years there's plenty of it but I'm saying as a rule of thumb, it's been my experience. I've visited Europe uh, five, six times, and I've seen demonstrations just yeah, as a tourist walking around. Oh, look, there's a demonstration. I've seen that in Milan and Paris and Prague even and uh, uh, Madrid. And I've seen armed military troops walking the streets of Brussels and Paris. And I'm thinking that it's a much more, always has been probably a much more politic climate in general in Europe than it is for most people over here in America are content to watch television and, you know, uh, deal with their family crises and stuff like that. But in general, I would say that Europe is, and probably, well, now with Brexit and everything, you guys are really going. Oh, yes. (laughs) But is that the impression you get as well? Um, I think so. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the distinction is often made as well between Britain and, and, and the rest of the continent where people say that, I mean, the British traditionally, I mean, are much more phlegmatic or much more apathetic, I guess. And yes, if you go to Paris, I mean, it doesn't take much to get people sort of out on the streets, you know, tipping cars over and so on. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting, I think, in relation to Pasolini's 
view of uh, contemporary life in that, I mean, I think he says that, you know, at this point in time, I mean, the working class or, you know, everybody is just sort of incorporated into the system and, uh, you know, everybody is just consuming mindlessly. And yet, as you say, I mean, at this point in time, I mean, you know, you have this incredible sort of explosion of political activity. And uh, I think Italy had the biggest communist party in uh, Western Europe. And um, so, yeah, I I think um, it was pretty unavoidable, really, in these years. And uh, I think that's probably part of the context that we miss as contemporary viewers. And I think, as, as I say, as as Anglophone viewers, I mean, and I think when you get like a reference um, in this film to Togliatti, which is at the end of the film, when they uh, uh, the farm workers come in, I mean, I, I, I had to kind of look up and read a bit about Togliatti, who was the, uh, I think, the, the leader of the Italian Communist Party for about 30 37 years, something like that. And I think to a contemporary audience in Italy, that would have been immediately understandable and that would have had a you know a sort of a which i think it doesn't have now really i also think that in 1969 when this came out i don't know if all of america or britain um, if we were as empathetic then as we are now so i i, I want to you know kind of put this more in historical context because a lot of people were taken to the streets in the u.s i mean 68 was such a year of bloodshed and riots uh, throughout the United States and continued right on to 69. So I think we're a little bit more engaged than we are now. Um, but yeah, I don't know if even a contemporary American watching this would necessarily know all the ins and outs of Italian politics. At the time, I'm not sure if it was concurrent with, with Porcile or not, but at one point, I believe during the sixties, the, uh, party uh, the ruling party in Italy was actually something called the Democratic Catholic Party and so this is as a result of that uh, it kind of makes sense in, to a certain extent I mean it's you know church and state together but mm. since uh, you know Italy was 90 some percent Catholic yeah you get it to a certain extent but as a result of that, uh, Pasolini, I think, w- it was involved in something like 30 different cases where he was a uh, defendant because yes. he would get uh, you know, arrested for obscenity, for uh, blasphemy. It was a crime at that time over there. So this was adding another, uh, another uh, thing to the uh, volatile situation over there is he had got the church looking over everything. And I, I, yes, I think he was, uh, he was acquitted every time, wasn't he? And uh, the, uh, from what I've read about some of the uh, things that were brought against him, I mean, I think some of them were just like the most absurd sort of trumped up charges. I think one of them was like, you know, uh, weapons possession and I just try to make anything stick. And uh, I think it's interesting that, from what I've read, I think he uh, ultimately took quite a combative position, I think, in relation to these critiques. And I wonder if you know, like a film like Pochile, in its kind of obscurity and in, in its strangeness, whether this is part of that, you know, quite militant um, attack, I think, you know, just the form of the film, the way that it is quite obscure, I mean, was, 
you know, part of his re- rebellion, I think, against the, 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 the wider society. I, mean, I, I think from what I've read, I think he felt he was always much better understood in France. And I think he had, uh, he felt that he got a better better reception in France than he did in Italy. But uh, I mean, I guess that's such a traditional thing, isn't it? That, I mean, people are not really understood in their, or not appreciated in their own country. I find the the timeline to be interesting when it comes to the film itself, because they make several references to time in that 67 section, because they say right towards the beginning, today's the first day of spring, and it's also Julian's birthday. And then they talk later on about five months have passed. And then there are other references throughout where you're kind of not sure exactly what time it is now, but we know that time is passing in that story. And then contrasting that with the Clementi story, I'm always curious as far as how much time is passing for him. Is he out on Mount Etna for years or is it months or weeks or days or is that all continuous and i like the interplay of these things it, it we just recorded a discussion a few weeks ago about arrows plus massacre the yoshida film and that is doing very similar stuff it's not the wide range of time between the clementi story and the leo story but it is um 1920s to 1969. And I think both of these films really use this idea of the contrasting time to kind of point fingers at one another to say like what was happening then is still happening now, or look at the gap in between these two times and what are we missing and try to fill in the blanks from that. Because obviously we were talking before that World War II was a major thing that affects the story of Porchile, but they don't necessarily talk about World War II very openly. Being Germans, they probably wouldn't want to talk about World War II openly. <laughs> Germans that speak fluent Italian. It's messed up enough without digging up old wounds, you know. It's interesting, too, that in the, the, the contrast between, I guess, what you'd say is like contemporary story and an ancient historical story i mean the fact that i think pasolini deliberately uh made it obscure as to which time period this is set in i mean i think it means that we could also read this in terms of i guess sort of first world versus developing world because i, I think pasolini would really into i guess what was known at the time as like third worldism you know the idea that uh, you know the populations in the developing world are not yet incorporated into consumer capitalism and therefore are more likely to be the kind of revolutionary agent. And I wondered if we could read the film in that sense too. I mean, I know that in the mythical films, I think he's gesturing to that idea of, uh, you know, sort of third world politics and so on. And I think in the trilogy of life to some extent, and uh, yeah, I wondered what you thought about that, whether there was a possible sort of third worldist dimension to those uh, cannibal scenes. Well, he always said that he related to the sub proletariat and um, to to the extent that he did is always interesting. The, the dichotomy between how an intellectual views people like a sub proletariat is that kind of thing. What does he hope to do by championing them? Uh, it, it's another needle that he tried to thread. I, he was on a, a talk show on another occasion in which somebody asked him pretty much about this. And 
I, I really did not understand the answer, but he was talking about wanting to speak to an elite, an elite audience, but he meant that elite audience to be laborers. And I just don't see how a laborer is going to, boy, I just saw Porcelli last night. Let, I'm really ready to go for a revolution, you know? <laughs> I love that line when the farmers show up and they say, are they waving red flags and carrying their farm implements? <laughs> <laughs> are they here with their pitchforks to drive us out of this estate or do they want something else? Just as an aside, this came up. Personally, between me and uh, Michael Moore, he screened Roger and me at a at a theater in Birmingham, Michigan. I attended the screening, and I asked him, I said, you know, don't you think you should be showing this movie in someplace other than the wealthiest suburb <laughs> in the Detroit area? And he said, well, the distributor could, the only place the distributor at that point was able to screen it. So it's... That's always seems to be an issue when it comes to your intellectual revolutionary filmmakers. Unless you four wall someplace, there's really only one seven day a week movie theater in Detroit. And that, that cinema Detroit probably wasn't even around when Roger and me was happening. That was like over 20 years ago, I think. Yeah. So they were just a dream. I think you had uh, movies at the Renaissance center and that was about it for theaters in Detroit. Yeah. As far as like having a, a run of films i mean there was the dft there's other been there's been other film theaters but specialized and usually the place where uh well-to-do people would go uh, yeah i, I mean I, I get the sense that i think it's a point in pasolini's uh career that i mean he did i think try to reach out a bit more and to make films that were a bit more uh, popular. I mean, I think the films that he did with Toto and especially Hawks and Sparrows, I mean, as far as I know, was meant to be an attempt to be a bit more accessible. I mean, albeit, you know, in a film with a talking Marxist crow and uh, an allegory of St. Francis of Assisi. Nonetheless, I think when you compare it with a film like Chile, I mean, I think there is a bit more charm, there's a bit more, um, bit more warmth or humour to that. And uh, I did read somewhere that he wanted to get Jacques Tati to play um, the character of Herd Hitzer, which I guess made, would have made it a bit, bit more of, of a box office draw. But, uh, I, I mean, can't imagine. <laughs> nothing against Hugo Tognazzi, who I think is also great. but uh, Uno is, is really well cast here. I've always been curious about the, uh, the very iconic image that comes with this film that is not in the film, which is this man in a suit wearing a pig head with a what looks like a wig on top of the pig head so it looks like human hair who is shushing us exactly the way that we are shushed at the end of the film but i don't know where this image comes from and whenever i see the film when i bought it on dvd it had that as the cover when i look at you know films that are playing at lincoln center or have played at lincoln center that's the image that they use for the catalog I don't know where this image comes from, and I'm very curious about that. Yes, yes. I, I think another uh, thing that slightly disappointed me when I first saw it, because yes, yeah, the, uh, the NTSC uh, ex-rental copy, it did have that. It wasn't a great cover otherwise. It was a bit battered, but it did have that image. And yeah, I was uh, <laughs> getting a little sad. Yeah, it's such a striking image. I was just like, oh, wow, are people going to actually turn into pigs <laughs> at the end of this movie? That would be kind of neat. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like an image from, if you've seen Marquis, the film by um, Roland Topor, it almost looks like an image. From that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, there's a great uh, music video by a band called Plaid where it is all it's uh, instrumental song and the video is about uh, pigs and how we can get more pork out of uh, pigs and make larger pigs. And pretty soon the video starts to freak out a little bit and the people in the video start to turn into pigs. And I was just like, oh, okay, it'll that it would be a great double feature to watch that and then watch this. But yeah, no, unfortunately no one actually turns into a pig and no one's wearing a pig head in the movie. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Disappointment. Just as a very childish uh, political aside, I don't know if you heard the rumors about the uh, ex-British prime minister, Dave Cameron. But, oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. We saw black mirror thing. Yeah. I wonder what he thinks of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he can relate. As another aside, uh, Vyazemsky was Mrs. Godard at the time that this film was made. It was uh, Jean-Luc's um, follow-up to Anna Karenina. Yes, and she, she's quite an interesting figure because I think uh, at the time she was kind of cast, I guess, in his movies, an evolutionary emblem. And I, I think she herself has said later on that, I mean, she, I guess, moved in those circles because I think she was a student at Nanterre, but I think she never really felt with that kind of like revolutionary politics. I think she felt more with the uh, anarchists, you know, Daniel Cohn-Bendit. But I, I, I think at the time, of course, this was Jean-Luc Godard's Maoist period. And uh, But I don't think she ever really identified with those kind of politics. And of course, there's this film now about um, Godard in those years, which is based on uh, Vyazemsky's memoir. And I think it was called in, I think the original title in French was uh, Redoutable, but then it was retitles Godard, Mon Amour. But that's quite an interesting insight into that uh, period. And actually, you do see an actor playing Marco Ferreri in the film. So yeah, quite, uh, quite interesting, I think, to see in relation to this. That's actually a movie that's out now. I think so. Yeah, I saw it in Toronto a couple of years ago, but I think it should be available somewhere. Oh, that'd be interesting to see. I always thought that uh, Godard probably ended up uh, wooing Vyazemsky because he liked uh, Alhazard Balthazar so much. I think he visited the set of that, and I think that's where he first met her, and then I think they to one another, and yeah, it's... Uh, I think that, yes, I think that was the basis of the initial meeting somehow. And she had those Anna Karina eyes. <laughs> it, yeah, it was interesting in the in the uh, that biopic because I, I felt that it's almost like that the, they wanted her to be Karina. I felt that I mean the sort of the way that they were sort of presenting her was almost as though it was more Karina than Vyazemsky. Really, it's that kind of a. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that movie possibly sort of uh, sells her a bit short, really, because I presents her as just this sort of young sort of ingenue, and I think probably there was a bit more to her to her than that. But uh, yeah. well, I agree. I agree. Uh, I, I find her to be uh, captivating. I'm surprised there isn't more either written about this, or there's no. You know, there's, there are Blu-rays of this available, but as far as commentary and extras and things, it's pretty bare bones out there. And I'm surprised there hasn't been more attention paid to this film, or maybe it's just 
so enigmatic that people don't care, or they just don't feel that it's a major Pasolini work compared to something like Teorema or Salo? It was, along with Medea, it was his uh, biggest money loser, <laughs> yes. or, or his least popular film, apparently. Yes, that's what I'd heard too, that it was, yes, I think, I think, uh, yeah, never got the attention. And I think, I think for me, the fact that it was really the last one that I got to see, I think indicates that, that yes, I mean, uh, and of course, Salo has this, you know, whole reputation of its own. And I think Pochile falls between two stools somehow, because yes, it doesn't have that accessibility and the immediacy of the earlier sort of money or realist style films and it doesn't have shock back to follow so yeah as we said it's hard to know what to do with it i think i have to say i really have enjoyed watching this movie i've watched it three times now for the show and it's 98 minutes i think and it just flies by i think having the cross cutting between the two different stories helps and it's just very enjoyable to watch i gotta tell you i was like the very first time i saw it I like I said, my initial reaction was "huh," and but I've seen it three times since then, and it. You're right. I mean, like despite the the static imagery, because he doesn't really like move the camera around, and most of the shots are static, and despite how dense the material is and how enigmatic it is, I just like by the fourth time I saw it, which was earlier today, I wanted to take notes. And it just flew right by. And I think it is largely the the, the effect of cutting, the cross-cutting, because you're going from one episode to another episode. And really, like, in terms of, like, there really isn't much there in either story. But when you cross-cut between them, they add up to a whole movie somehow. And uh, it seems to fly right by. I was trying to think of, of another filmmaker who does that kind of cross-cutting between completely disparate stories. And I mean, the only comparable figure I could think of was someone like Makaveyev. And um, of course, Pierre Clementi was in Sweet Movie a bit later. And I believe Pasolini really liked Sweet Movie. And I think he was involved in producing the Italian dub of the film. So I think there is that uh, connection there with um, Makaveyev. And uh, it was really interesting, I think, in... Um, Mike's notes you said about the uh, the idea I think that is kind of uh, uh, implied early on it seems as though the Clementi character is somehow hallucinating or dreaming the first images that we see of the modern story and uh, so I think that suggests some kind of interaction between the two protagonists and uh, to me it relates back to that uh, I think it's a famous Chinese folk tale isn't it about the uh, uh, the butterfly and the uh, man who are dreaming one another. And of course, the first, virtually the first image in this film is the butterfly. And I wonder, maybe I'm reaching a little bit with that interpretation, but I think there is that idea of that relationship between the two protagonists that, I mean, one could be the fantasy one. No, I, I don't think you're reaching that far. And, and Ken, you brought up an interesting point as far as the static camera and there are a few times where the camera's moving but i noticed that it was almost all handheld so i was wondering if that was a stylistic choice or if they just didn't have a dolly available but the handheld work uh there's two sequences in particular that i can think of when um 
Yulian and Ida are on either side of that reflecting pond, and they're both coming towards the camera, and the camera's moving backwards. That's very clearly handheld, and there's another scene inside of the house where, again, the camera's moving backwards as the characters move forwards, and that's very clearly handheld as well. And I'm just like, okay, is this, like, could they not afford to lay dolly tracks, or what's going on with this but um yeah you're right the rest of the time the camera is super static it, it's interesting in those two sequences isn't it i think especially one with the lake because i guess the camera is a bit shaky but you have that sense of architecture somehow kind of grounding it and that is a really odd sequence isn't it because they're sort of talking to one another and i don't know at that distance whether they would actually hear each other and uh, it's very ritualized because they're on either side of the lake and then they kind of gradually come together don't they at the end and uh and and, and again with the sequence with herd hits there and clots where they're walking through the doorways again you know you have that sort of formal structure sort of underpinning it and uh of the you know the the architecture of the doorway and uh yeah i think he liked to do that i think he liked to create a kind of a formal style and then just kind of throw you slightly because i noticed that in salo too which i mean in one way i mean it's a very formal very static movie lots of tableau but every so often he'll throw in like a handheld shot and uh, maybe it is part of this aesthetic of constant disruption where you know you feel that you are kind of you know you know where you're going and then he'll just throw you off slightly there is a a good deal of symmetry as well much like wes anderson <laughs> You know, you'll you'll have a room, not an angle of a room or, uh, you know, a, a straight on shot of a room and someone is in the center or there's two characters symmetrically balanced against each other profiles or and that seems to be uh, something that pops up quite often in this film. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. It started high on a lonely note. It all started that day on the beach near Istanbul. Or did it? It started the instant you saw her. blowing high on a lonely trumpet drifts from Istanbul to Rio de Janeiro but he can't erase a vision of death and beauty even a love like he has never known or dared imagine can make him forget tell me how did she hook your mind just how tell me please desire could create reality his vision is real his venus in furs is alive who are you i don't know who is she tell me the truth i don't know and i don't care 
She is Wanda. She is his Venus in furs. She is alive. And the coat that covers paradise uncovers hell. Venus in furs will be smiling. Did she return from hell to take her murderers back? Or was this hell? I know you. I met you a long time ago. Together. We united in death. This elusive Venus. Is she the sex symbol of a wild fantasy? We escaped from the real world into a dream world that I never wanted to end. Everything ended a long time ago. Venus in furs. A masterpiece of supernatural sex. A frightening trip into the unknown by the unknowing. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at just Franco's Venus and Furs. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ken and Jonathan. So, Ken, what's been keeping you busy, sir? The band's still playing. We're still doing our thing. Still loud? Still loud. Still taking it easy, relaxing, enjoying myself, and doing the occasional podcast or two. And, Jonathan, how many projects do you have going right now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm just about to uh, put the final touches to an essay on Your I Hurt, and that's going to come out in, as part of a book on Barandov Studios and about different uh, Czech and Slovak directors who worked at Barandov. And I think that will be out this year at some point, and that will be called um, Hollywood of Europe. And that's about the, uh, yeah, um, Barandov Studios. Um, done a few things for Second Run for the uh, some new DVD Blu-ray releases. And I'm also researching Czech cinema and its relationship to cult cinema. And in particular, I'm really interested in the uh, reception of a film, which I'm sure you know, called um, Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scold Myself with Tea, which was... Uh, shown on BBC Two in the early 80s and has become this kind of semi-mythical broadcast. And I'm going to try and interview a few people who saw that original screening. And uh, so, yeah, these are some of the uh, things that I'll, I'll be doing this year. I guess you are not on that episode, but we will be talking about that in September. Yes, I might just about have finished doing my research by then. Oh, awesome. Maybe I'll have to interview for you for that one. Uh, may I ask what you're doing in October? Did you know right offhand? In September, I'm doing all my uh, all my good countrymen, birds, orphans, and fools, uh, fruit of paradise, Morgiana, and tomorrow I will wake up and scald myself with tea. Okay, I will be listening. And Jonathan is going to be on birds, orphans, and fools. Mm, looking forward to that. It's one of my favorite films. I have never seen it, so I'm I'm using this as an excuse to check it out. Another great 1969 film. Exactly. I think three of those five films are from 1969. So I'm keeping up with the theme, baby. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Press Schweine Sound. Not like this. I think I'll try something else. Rondo.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.